Today we continue our series uh, that has been started over the last few uh, weeks in John's Gospel. So if you'd like to turn to John's Gospel and uh, to, we're reading from uh, chapter 1, from verse 35 through to verse 51. That's John chapter 1, verse 35 through to verse 51. And I think that's on page 1064. Uh, in the church Bibles here, page 1064. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent that day with him. It was about the tenth hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard that John had what John had said and and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here is a true Israelite, in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. He then added, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray together. Our God and Father, we thank you for the privilege it is to be here together and to be able to worship you. We know that this is only possible because of all that you have shown to us by your grace and all that you have drawn us to in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ. And so we thank you. And as we come now to study your word of eternal truth together, 
we do pray that you would grant us humble and open hearts, that we might truly hear the voice of your Holy Spirit speaking to us directly, and that we might be changed and better equipped to live our lives for the glory of your name. For you alone are worthy of all honour and praise, both now and forevermore. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the things that is uh, very helpful about the Gospel of John is that not only does he provide us with what is an incredibly profound insight into the person of Jesus Christ, his nature and his identity, but he also makes very clear his entire purpose for doing so. In other words, he spells out for us precisely why, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's written this gospel account in the first place. Now, apologies if uh, you've already covered this. I wasn't here in week one of this series, but I do think it's helpful for us just at the beginning here to again look to this great verse, and it's chapter 20 and verse 31 of John's Gospel. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but let's just keep this in our minds this morning as we look at this passage, because this verse is in many ways like the key that unlocks the door to the whole of John's Gospel. John is speaking here specifically about why he has recorded what he has in this book. And he says this. He says, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. And you think to yourself, isn't that a wonderful statement? For us to have in our minds this morning, not just in the context of this gospel, but in the whole context of our Christian lives and in the whole context of what it means to think about Christian mission. In other words, he's saying the whole point of this book and the whole purpose of scripture, we might add to that, is to provide sufficient testimony or revelation so as to determine beyond any reasonable doubt or any reasonable question that Jesus is the Christ, that he alone is the one who is perfectly suited to the desperate needs of sinful men and women like you and I. As one commentator put it, he said, from the very beginning onwards, every part of John's gospel is intended to lead the reader to higher and higher views of Jesus of Nazareth until the high watermark is reached in chapter 20 where doubting Thomas becomes believing Thomas, confessing my Lord and my God. Well, I mention all of that uh, this morning by way of a brief introduction simply because I think it just underlines the fact that really the purpose of this passage that we're looking at this morning is not just to tell us why Jesus, or sorry, rather, it's not just to tell us the way that Jesus called these first disciples to himself 2,000 years ago, and so he began the process of building his church here on earth, although that is important, and uh, we'll come on to that later on. But it's also within that context to press home to us for our encouragement, or perhaps even to show us this morning, 
for the very first time why Jesus is uniquely the one that we too must follow. So that like Andrew, we too might respond positively to Christ's invitation in verse 39 where he says, Come and you will see. That we too would be able to affirm in our hearts what Nathaniel declares in verse 49 when he says, You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. You are the King over all God's true people. And so what I want to do uh, here this morning is just to break this really into two parts. First of all, we'll think about the basis on which this Jesus is the one that we must find all of our joy and hope and love and purpose in in life, the person and the purpose of Christ. And secondly, we'll then look at some of the specifics concerning the call of Christ to these disciples, the call of Christ. So what does John reveal here? concerning the person and the purpose of Christ. Why is he alone who could and should and who has begun this wonderful process of building his eternal kingdom, his band of believing people, sons and daughters of God, who will enter into glory with him? Well, first of all, we're reminded here very simply through the testimony of these disciples themselves that Jesus is none other than the long-awaited, the long-expected Messiah. He is the Messiah. We're told in verse 41 that Andrew, one of the first two disciples who met with Jesus, came to tell his brother Simon Peter what had happened, who it was they'd encountered. And he did so by declaring, we have found the Messiah. What is the significance of this? Well, this word Messiah and the Greek equivalent Christos or Christ, they're both words which very simply tell us that Jesus is God's anointed one. Specifically, it means he is the great savior king. He is the one who was promised all down through the generations and in the line of David, the one who was to come and to lead and to teach and ultimately and most significantly for all of us here this morning to save God's people. And you notice this point of his messianic identity. It's actually underlined again later on in verse 44, again in the words of the disciples, where it's explicitly stated that this Christ is the one who fulfills all of Old Testament prophecy. In verse 44, we read that Philip, having already encountered Jesus, then found Nathanael, and he said this, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now let's just stop and think about this for a second. There's something in the region of over 300 prophecies throughout the Old Testament concerning this coming Messiah. Words that were spoken by many people under the inspiration of God's Spirit over thousands of years. And let's remember the context here. It's so easy, is it not, for us to read a a phrase like this. Here is the Messiah. Kind of gloss over it. Yes, we know that. We know he's the Messiah. But think about the context here. It's somewhere around 30 AD, maybe a bit before that. Heaven has been silent 
God has been silent for 400 years following on from the prophecy of Malachi. And here are these ordinary men in the presence of this other man, Jesus. And what Philip is saying here, having spent less than a day in the Lord's presence, is he's saying, in this Jesus, I am absolutely convinced that he is the one in whom all of these promises and all of these predictions are comprehensively realized. And what's interesting is there's a kind of subtle irony here in the way that Nathaniel responds to this news. In verse 46, he says, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? And why is that ironic? Well, just think about this. What was prophesied concerning the beginnings of this Savior's life here on earth? Do we read in the Old Testament that the coming Messiah would be born into a palace? That he would be raised by a prince and a princess in grandeur and in splendor and in great prominence? We don't read any of those things. But what we do read in Isaiah 53 is it says he grew up like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. In other words, he grew up in a barren place. He was to grow up in a place where nothing very impressive ever grows, a place you'd most certainly not expect the king of all kings to emerge from. He grew up in a place like Nazareth. And so in Nathaniel's response here, his kind of incredulity, Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? What he says unwittingly in a sense, God is recording for us through John deliberately in order to affirm and to underline the truth of Philip's words, namely that Christ is indeed the supreme fulfillment of all that was promised in the Hebrew Scriptures. But then moving on, if all of that tells us that Jesus alone is the one who came to be the king and the head of the church, the one due to who he is, due to his identity, we also are reminded here in this passage that he alone is the one who can and who does give life to the church due to what he came to do on our behalf. What I think is quite poignant here in this passage is we see this purpose of Christ, what he came to do for his bride, for his body, the church. We see it at both the beginning and at the end of this passage First of all, at the start, in verse 35, we're told it's a new day, but the message of John the Baptist remains the same. When he sees Jesus walking by, he says, look, the Lamb of God, which of course is a shortened version of his words just the day before when he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, those who were here a few weeks ago remember that Bob uh, Ackroyd did a very helpful job in explaining Jesus as the sacrificial lamb of God. But just very briefly here, by way of a kind of reminder, here we have John the Baptist. It's a new day of his ministry. And what do we find him doing in the context of these disciples being called by Jesus? He's not only trying to alert people as to the presence of Jesus, is he? 
But instead, what he's doing day after day, it seems, is that he's constantly trying to underline the primary basis on which he alone is the one who can give life to the church. He's saying, here is the sacrificial lamb. Here is the one who will suffer the punishment of God's wrath for our sin. Here is the one who will shed his precious sinless blood on a cross. Such that you and I, the guilty ones, can walk free. Isn't it truly staggering, folks, just to, just to stop this morning and to just shut out all the other things that we might be otherwise distracted by and to just think again of this Jesus, this precious, spotless, sinless lamb, the eternal son of God, dying in our place for our sins. I think the challenge that we all have is summed up well in the words of a song where the songwriter, she says this, may I never lose the wonder, the wonder of the cross. May I see it like the first time, standing as a sinner lost, undone by mercy and left speechless, watching wide-eyed at the cost. May I never lose the wonder, the wonder of the cross. What's very poignant here is that whereas at the beginning of the passage, John points us again to the means by which we're forgiven, namely in the fact that Jesus Christ is the sacrificial lamb. At the end of the passage, Jesus himself sums up for us the result of our having been forgiven, that through him and by him, we are actually reconciled to God the Father. Look at verse 51. He, that is Jesus, then added, I tell you the truth. Now when he says you here, he's using the plural you, so he's not just addressing Nathaniel specifically, one of the disciples, but he's speaking to all his true disciples. He says, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, this promise Jesus gives to Nathaniel and to all who follow him today, it's really a recollection of the dream or the vision that Jacob was given way back in Genesis 28, verse 12, sometimes, of course, referred to as Jacob's ladder. And uh, you might remember that the substance of that dream was it was essentially a picture that had been given to Jacob of the covenant that God had made with his father, Abraham. Namely, his promise to reverse the effects of the fall and to provide for us a means by which this broken communion, whereby we are separated from God at birth on account of our sin, this broken communion would instead become a loving and intimate and harmonious and eternal relationship. And so as you picture this ladder, this vision that was given to Jacob thousands of years beforehand, the truth of what Jesus is saying here in verse 51 is that this ladder provided and initiated by God, 
this ladder that stretches all the way down from the height of his holiness to the depths of human depravity. This bridge that brings us back to God finds its comprehensive fulfillment in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And not only that, what we might also say is that this ladder, if you think about it, this ladder between fallen humans and this holy God in the person of Christ, it effectively becomes a single step because it becomes the step of genuine saving faith, trusting in Jesus, his person and his work on our behalf. Of course, the problem that you and I often have is, isn't it true that we often try to create our own kind of ladder back to God? Isn't it true that we are so prone to falling into this kind of mindset whereby we think we're on some sort of journey and that we're climbing up some sort of self-created ladder of good works and personal achievements? So that one day, if we try really hard, if we climb really hard, this, this ladder might just eventually take us into the realm of God's presence. And of course, the problem is with that way of thinking, as Tim Keller very helpfully points out in one of his books, is you only end up in one of two places. You end up in either despair and despondency because you constantly feel like you're always failing, or you end up in the place of absolute pride because you think you've been a good little boy that day or because you think you've been a good little girl that day. And so no, says Jesus, the vision given to Jacob and the promise given here are one and the same thing, that the only bridge back to God, the basis of reconciliation, the only basis on which we can be part of this wonderful royal bride is to be found in his person, trusting in who he is and all he has done on our behalf. Now, if all of that concerns the person and the purpose of Christ in the context of him calling these disciples, let's now turn and just think about some specific things we see concerning his call to these men and the implications of all of this for our own lives, his calling of these men 2,000 years ago. Now, there's so much in this passage. There's a lot that we could say, but let me just try to pull out three big things I think we need to get from all of this. First of all, there's the challenge of our motivation, of our intentions in responding to Christ's call. In verse 38, we're told that when Andrew and the disciple who's not named here began to follow Jesus, he saw them coming after him and he asked, what do you want? What do you want? Now, there's two things here. The first thing is that whenever Jesus asks a question in the scriptures, he's never asking the question for his own benefit. After all, he already knows the answer. He's asking the question both for the benefit of the person whom he's asking the question of and for our benefit today. He's asking the question so that you and I today and this disciple then, that we would search our hearts, that we would examine ourselves, 
that we would assess our true motivations and our true desires. Now, as it happens, Jesus shows this wonderful patience and grace to these disciples here, which is a lesson in itself in terms of his dealings with us, because they respond to him with another question, Rabbi, where are you staying? To which he gives the invitation, come and see. And so you get the slight impression here that these disciples have been caught a little bit like a rabbit in the headlights. What do you want? Uh, Well, uh, we're not too sure. Uh, Rabbi, by the way, where are you staying? But let's be honest, folks. Jesus' question here is a real challenge. It's a searching one for us all. Because it's very clear from elsewhere in the scriptures that there is a kind of person or a kind of mindset that we can all fall into whereby we want Jesus for his healing power. We want Jesus for his authority to forgive our sins and to grant us eternal life. But we're not so sure that we want a Jesus who will be the Lord and the King over every single aspect of our lives. And I suppose the clearest example or demonstration of this in the scriptures is probably in Luke chapter 18 and the story of the rich young ruler. Do you remember the story? The man comes to Jesus. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? He asked. A brief conversation then ensues regarding the law. And then suddenly this man becomes very sad and he becomes very downhearted. And of course the reason is that whilst he's very sure he wants eternal life, he's not quite so sure that he's willing to give up the idolatry of his wealth and to exchange it for the worship of the one true God. And the challenge, in a sense, is made even more solemn later on when we see very specifically that Jesus sees right into the heart of these first disciples and of you and I today. We see it in the case of Nathaniel. He is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. He's not saying he is a man without sin, but he's saying he can see right into his heart and he sees a man of true integrity. He sees a man of uprightness who's not being double-minded about anything. And so there is a challenge here, is there not? For all of us this morning to allow ourselves to be examined under the all-searching gaze of the Holy Spirit. As Jesus says to each one of us, directly and personally, what do you want? Secondly, we're reminded here that God's calling comes with the most wonderful intention. Namely, that our entire lives would be transformed and given eternal meaning. In verse 42, it says that, When Andrew brought his brother Simon to Jesus, Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. And so not only does Jesus demonstrate here, again, as I just mentioned, his absolute prior foreknowledge of this man inside and out, who he's just met for the first time in a physical sense, just as he does later with Nathaniel. But he also makes very clear that this encounter is one that is going to change all that Peter is and all that Peter stands for. 
Whereas once you were poor, ordinary Simon the fisherman, a man without hope and with only a temporary purpose, Jesus effectively says by giving him this title, the rock, I am making you a new man. I am making you a man whose life will amount to an eternal significance. Not in the sense of the Roman Catholic understanding, of course, as in the head of the church, but he's effectively saying, I am making you this rock whose purpose is to build upon the one true foundation, namely Jesus himself. So that whereas you might have once cast out this kind of grotty old net into the Sea of Galilee, so now you're going to cast out the gospel of truth for the furtherance of my kingdom and for the purposes of my glory. And of course, what do we see later on in the New Testament, in the scriptures, in the book of Acts? We see this same ordinary Peterman, Peter, Peterman I almost said instead of Peter the fisherman, this same ordinary man, we see him, on the day of Pentecost, preaching the gospel and witnessing the conversion of 3,000 people. And you know, when you really think about this, friends, this morning, as you think about this example of Peter being called by the Lord Jesus Christ, this, in a sense, sums up the whole essence, the whole pattern, the crux of the Christian gospel. Just think about this. Jesus, the one of greatest, supreme, and eternal significance. He comes humbly into the world to meet with ordinary, hopeless sinners like Peter and you and me. He becomes nothing on a cross. One from whom men hide their faces. So that we who have nothing can gain everything through him. Eternal purpose, eternal worth, and eternal life. The question is, if all of this has become a reality in our own lives, if by God's grace we have been awakened to see our need, our desperate need, to be forgiven of our sins and to be cleansed of all that is unrighteous. And we have come to trust in the blood of Jesus Christ as being the only basis on which we can have eternal life. What then, if that is true in our lives, what then is it that we must be called to? Well, just very briefly, the third thing we see here is we see the challenging pattern for the continuation of Christ's call, the challenging pattern for the continuation of his call. In verse 41, look at 41. Remember, this is just after Andrew has met with Jesus for the first time. And yet it says this, it says, the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him. To which John Calvin said this, he said, Andrew has scarcely one spark, and yet by it he enlightens his brother. Woe to our apathy if we, more fully enlightened than he, do not try to make others partake of this same grace. 
And so this morning as we just consider these such basic and yet fundamental truths of who Jesus Christ is, that all that he has done on our behalf, let us pray that we would not only find all of our joy and all of our confidence and all of our satisfaction in who he is on our behalf, but let us pray too that by his grace at work in our hearts and our minds and in our lives, that we might have this newfound sense of urgency, this newfound sense of desire to make many more disciples besides. Because this was his commission to these men 2,000 years ago. And this is still his commission today. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, as well as Christian commentary on the latest current affairs in Scotland, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solace-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.